It's hard for me to introduce uh, my wonderful colleague and friend, uh, Dr. Tripp Gulick. In some ways, I think in this audience, he needs very little introduction. Tripp is the director of infectious diseases at Weill Cornell, the co-chair of this course, and just a general inspiration uh, to all of us who have been doing HIV care and academic ID for a long time. He's going to talk to us about PrEP. Thanks, Jeannie. I have no disclosures. So what we're going to do today is to review the current data to support the use of PrEP and to discuss some investigational agents in development for PrEP. The first question is, do we need better prevention? And I think you'll all agree with me that the answer is yes. We, this is uh, HIV infections globally. The good news is they're down 16% since 2010. The bad news is that they're down 16% since 2010, so not enough. And as you can see the green dot there, that was the goal for reducing HIV infection. So we're not quite in line with goals, and we need better tools to decrease HIV infections. Um, here are new HIV diagnoses in New York City, and uh, what you see with the blue bars is the highest in each of these different groups in terms of numbers of infections. So you can see men account for about 20, or sorry, 80% of new infections. Blacks and Latinos overrepresented younger people, age 20 to 29, uh, pretty much across uh, four out of the five boroughs. I'm talking to you, Staten Island. And then uh, MSM accounting for almost 60% of the cases. Um, note the far right, which is poverty. And so you can see that new, a significant proportion of the new cases are either in areas of high poverty or very high poverty. This gives us a roadmap for where HIV prevention should really be targeted to these groups. These are where the new infections are occurring. So our governor, Governor Cuomo, back in 2014, five years ago, was the first government official on the planet to say that he wanted to eliminate AIDS in his jurisdiction. That was controversial at the time. He had a three-point plan, diagnose HIV and link to care, link, retain, and treat with ART to achieve virologic suppression, and the third was provide PrEP for high-risk people to keep them HIV negative. This was borderline revolutionary at the time. Um, now we're seeing people echoing this throughout the world. Equally important, not just standing up and announcing this, but was the fact that he put resources behind it. And as all New Yorkers know, this is being rolled out in a highly successful way. So PrEP is a key point of eliminating, ending the epidemic. E-T-E, -E, ending the epidemic, or E-H-E, ending the HIV epidemic. Gotta know your acronyms. Okay, so to echo that, the White House came out and had a federal plan to end AIDS by 2030 in the United States, which you're well aware of. Um, and similar five-point plan, diagnose everyone as early as possible with HIV. In purple, treat the infection rapidly to achieve sustained virologic suppression. And then what we're focusing on, orange, protect people at risk and use PrEP. So actually the word appears in federal guidelines to end the epidemic. Um, the point in blue, the fourth point, respond rapidly to detect clusters of HIV. And uh, number five, the HIV health force. So federal guidelines now paying attention, and PrEP is an important part of reducing 
and, and taking steps to end the epidemic. So these are the original, this is a summary of the three original studies of PrEP. You know these data. Um, the IPREX study randomized nearly 2,500 gay men uh, to either receive PrEP with two drugs, TDF-FTC versus placebo. The partners PrEP study was done in Africa in discordant couples, over 4,700. Uh, one partner positive, one partner negative. That's what discordant means. And they had three study arms. TDF alone, TDF-FTC, and then a placebo arm. And this was taken, obviously, by the negative partner to try to prevent infection. And then the CDC had the TDF-2 study done in Botswana, 1,200 adults, including nearly half women. And they, too, were randomized to either TDF-FTC as prevention versus placebo. So a similar design. And you see over on the far right, what were the results in terms of decreasing HIV infections. One important thing to remember in interpreting these older studies is that we didn't know if PrEP worked or not, and the participants were told that. We don't know if this intervention works or not. That's important. So you can see in the IPREX, 45% reduction, and in the two studies in African heterosexuals, somewhere between 63 and 75% reduction in new HIV infections. So you might say, wow, good, but not great. But then when they went back and looked at people who actually had detectable tenofovir levels, seeming to indicate that they were taking it, you can see the rates are higher. So 84% to 92% protection. This was the first wave of studies. This led to FDA approval, as you well know, in July 2012. So seven years ago, PrEP was approved. We were the first country on the planet to approve PrEP for prevention. And almost every word of the approval is important. So the US FDA approves two drugs, TDF-FTC for PrEP, in combination with safer sex practices to reduce the risk of sexually acquired HIV infection in adults at high risk. And that's the current approval for PrEP. And you can see that many countries followed that all over the globe, some of them listed for you there. So FDA approved. Now, two studies quickly followed in this era. One was called FemPrep and one was called VOICE, and our own co-chair, Jeannie Marazzo, was the chair of the VOICE study. They randomized women in Africa, and you can see thousands, in the FemPrep, similar design, TDF-FTC versus placebo. They were all HIV negative, so this was a PrEP study. And in Jeannie's study, it was a five-arm study, including both topical PrEP, so 1% TDF gel, a placebo gel, and then three oral arms, oral TDF alone, TDF-FTC versus placebo. Now look at the results in these studies over on the right. So the FemPrep study, only a 6% reduction in HIV infection in the group that used TDF-FTC. And in Jeannie's study, they stopped several arms early. No study drugs were effective. Now, how do you jibe that with what I just showed you? Those other studies I showed you done in Africa had half women represented. So why the difference here? And it turns out it's adherence. So in the FemPrep study, adherence was less than 40%, and in the VOICE study, less than 30%. And that's the explanation. Again, both these studies were done at a time where we really didn't know if PrEP worked or not. 
two studies were done after those initial studies. So it's fundamentally different, right? We know that PrEP works, and we knew PrEP worked if you took it. And that's what these study participants were told. The Ypergay study was done in over 400 MSM in France and Canada, a country very much like our own. And they were randomized to TDF-FTC versus placebo, and this was event-driven. So not taking one pill per day, but the so-called 2-1-1 approach, that you take two pills before sex, one pill after sex, and then one pill within 48 hours later. And I'll go over that regimen more specifically in the future. And then the PROUD study was a unique design, 545 MSM in England, um, and they were randomized to start TDF-FTC right away or a delayed start, because you might question the ethics of placebo, given that these were the second round of studies and we already knew prepped work. So one group started right away and one group was gonna start with a delayed start. Well, that never happened because of significant differences early on. And look at the results here, 86% protection in each of these studies with the group randomized to PrEP. So they in the PROUD study, they never got to the part of the study where the second group started. They stopped it early because of a significant difference and offered everyone PrEP. This is interesting to me just as a clinical trials person. These rates you know, really reflect the fact that we had some data, people were told, hey, this works if you take it. And guess what? They took it and it worked, so impressive. So overall, we know what's shown for you here, adherence across the, uh, the bottom and effectiveness across the top, and it just graphs all the studies that I just showed you. So you can see the studies with the higher adherence rates over on the right-hand side um, have the best efficacy rates. Uh, again, a, a complicated way to say PrEP works if you take it, and it's probably up to 100% effective. That was all sexual exposure. There was one other study that looked specifically at injection drug users in Thailand, over 2,400, randomized to one drug, TDF versus placebo. And as a reminder, injection drug users also have sex, so this is targeting potentially two routes to acquire HIV. Overall, their reduction was 49%, and again, when they went back and looked at the subset with detectable levels, it was 70% effective in this group. The WHO evaluated PrEP data in a very thoughtful way um, in 2015 and published this. Uh, and these are guidelines. Remember, WHO typically is writing for low and middle income countries. So efficacy, the advisors, the evaluation said effective across groups and genders, and that was the data I just showed you, backs that up. Adherence was heterogeneous across the studies, but related to efficacy. Side effects, and this is interesting, in those big studies, no more common than placebo, although they call out subclinical renal and bone issues. And again, all the studies I just showed you were TDF formulation. Drug resistance, low, 0.1% risk. Uh, risk compensation in these early studies, meaning if you knew you were on a prevention, would you take more sexual risks? And in these studies, it did not increase. And then cost, and again, they're speaking to low and middle income countries, could be a cost effective or even cost saving measure. 
logistics significant concerns, which is an understatement. So this was the message to the world. Prep works and has these issues, particularly logistical. What's the latest data on PrEP in some of these areas? So safety is a major concern to our patients, of course. And, and of course, when you talk to PrEP, we're really talking not potentially even patients, right? We're trying to prevent something. So people that we see. This compiles data from 13 randomized trials of PrEP versus placebo, many of the ones I just showed you, or no treatment at all. And there's a total of over 15,000 patients on those studies that contributed data here. If you look at grade three, four events, you can see they're not different. So those would be the most serious, serious or life-threatening adverse events. Um, if you look uh, at serious adverse events like hospitalizations, again, not different between the two groups. Bone fractures, no statistical difference between the two groups. And then creatinine, grade three and four, that's pretty hefty increase in creatinine. There was no difference at 0.1%, so no differences here. If you read the fine print and look at lower grade creatinine increases, so all grade, even the most mild ones, you do see more low-level increases in creatinine in the PrEP groups versus the control groups, it's statistically significant. So there is a small signal there, which we're all aware of. What's the latest on drug resistance? And so here over on the left are all the studies I just showed you. And then they looked what were the incidents of drug-resistant infections on PrEP. And you can see the numbers are very small. Um, and then on the right-hand side, incident uh, drug-resistant infections on placebo, there was one there, so someone acquired a drug-resistant. If you do the math here, the overall risk of FTC or tenofovir resistance is 0.05%, so very low. There is a caveat here, and that is people who enter PrEP studies or start PrEP with acute infection. And that's an issue, right, because you're treating with only two drugs, and in that case, resistance could be selected out. However, people taking PrEP long-term, developing resistance, very, very low risk. What about breakthroughs on PrEP? Are there people who develop HIV infection who take PrEP? And the answer is there are six reported in the literature. And uh, apologize for the fine print here, but uh, five of the six were people who were infected with resistant virus. So that doesn't surprise us too much, right? If you're taking TDF-FTC, but you're exposed to HIV that has resistance to one of the two, and note the M184 here that confers resistance to FTC present in one, two, three, four, five out of six of these cases. And then many of them had other mutations as well. So PrEP will not protect against exposure to a drug-resistant virus to the two drugs. It makes some sense. The case that got people's attention was case number five here, um, and that is a case of a person um, in Amsterdam who was infected with wild-type virus. Now, it turns out the devil's in the details, and this person had extensive sexual activity, um, multiple, multiple partners at, as portrayed in this case report. And so no one knows for sure why this person was infected. There are thoughts about can you just overcome um, with multiple, multiple exposures, or was it because of trauma? 
related or are there other extenuating circumstances? Whatever happened to this individual who was taking his PrEP well, and that was documented, but did become infected with a wild-type virus, it's a very unusual circumstance. So we don't really know why it happened. What about STIs? Uh, Jeannie presented a nice paper uh, from Australia. Um, We know where you're sitting. (laughs) Um, That showed that there was a relationship. And again, um, what's done for you here is a systematic review and meta-analysis of a number of reports. This goes beyond the clinical trials and is now looking in clinical practice. And uh, the solid line here, it's looking at the odds of having an STI um, on PrEP, so favors high STI diagnoses if it's to the right of this line. And you can see there's a trend there. If you compile all the data, it's just to the right of the line. It actually does cross one, so it does not reach statistical significance. I think in the clinics, we are seeing an increase in STIs on PrEP. So the data are taking a while to catch up to it. And remember that the clinical trials actually did not show that, but now we are seeing that. So case reports of PrEP being used in, not in clinical trials, but in the community, are showing increases in STIs, which we're aware of. And we test them, and we treat them, and we find the partners and try to treat them too. So these are the current CDC guidelines, um, 2017, and have not been updated since then. Who is PrEP recommended for? Anyone with, quote, substantial risk of HIV infection. And they break it into three groups, as shown for you here. So MSM, heterosexual men and women, and people who inject drugs. For the two groups that are sexually exposed, they say high risk would be having an HIV-positive sexual partner, having a bacterial STI, having what they call a high number of sex partners, and they leave it for you to define what that is, and then a history of inconsistent or no condom use or a history of commercial sex work. And then there's one caveat in the heterosexual group, so all of those things apply to MSM anywhere in the US. For heterosexuals, it says in a high HIV prevalence area or network. So you have to know what it is in your your jurisdiction to apply that. And then quite different people who inject drugs, um, having a positive injecting partner or sharing injection equipment. That's who should be offered PrEP according to national guidelines. And then what do we do when people are on PrEP? Again, rule out acute infection. Do this with symptoms and signs, and many people send an HIV RNA just to screen for that. Uh, assess baseline renal function, prescribe three months of TDF-FTC, and then have follow-up visits every three months when someone's on PrEP for repeat HIV testing, adherence and risk reduction counseling, side effect assessment, and importantly, STI symptom assessment and routine testing for chlamydia, GC, and syphilis, and obviously treat if necessary. So those are the federal PrEP guidelines and assess renal function every six months. Quite recently, and published in JAMA this year, was an assessment by the US UPSTF, the US Preventive Services Task Force. And they made a recommendation, it's quite strong, that for persons who are at risk of HIV infection, the group recommends that clinicians offer PrEP with effective ART, meaning 
TDFFTC in this case, to persons who are at high risk of HIV acquisition, and they gave it a grade A. That's their highest recommendation based on their review of the data. Uh, what, what's the importance of that? Well, there is a federal rule that private insurance and Medicare must offer A or B services without a copay. So it basically supports the use of PrEP and that private and federal insurers should pay for PrEP, no copay. That's strong. Okay, question to you. Have you prescribed oral daily TDFFTC for PrEP? Are you a PrEP prescriber? Yes, no, or I'm not a prescriber. Okay, 75 results. So two-thirds of you have already prescribed PrEP, and a third of you are not a PrEP prescriber, only 3% not prescribing PrEP. Uh, let's do a hand thing, too. How many of you would consider yourself an HIV provider? Raise your hand. Okay, I'm gonna say 52%. Jeannie, what, what do you think? About half. Okay, well, you're in good company if you're prescribing PrEP. So back in 2016, there were 77,000 PrEP users in the United States, and that had increased 73% over the year 2012, which you will recall is when the FDA approved it. Well, the trend continues. In 2017, there were 120,000 PrEP users in the US. This year, more than double, 270,000 people taking PrEP across the country. Uh, you can see New York is one of the states with the highest rates of PrEP use. Um, and in fact, the CDC did an estimate. Um, they did an estimate of people who would benefit from PrEP. So they considered race and ethnicity and risk group for acquiring HIV. And altogether, they estimated that 1.1 million Americans would be PrEP candidates. So you can see the quarter of, a million people who are taking PrEP right now, not quite reaching the number who might benefit from it. And the people that getting, are getting PrEP are perhaps not reflective of the groups at greatest risk for HIV infection, and that's important. So this is three graphs. Over on the left is the US population by race and ethnicity. So 62% white, 13% African American, 18% Latino. In the middle are estimated new HIV infections, and as you well know, overrepresented in people of color, both blacks and Latinos. Over on the right is who's getting TDF FTC for PrEP in late 2016. And you can see about three quarters are white and not in black and Latino groups as much. So underrepresented, and this is a group who would benefit more for, from taking PrEP, at least in 2016. Uh, here's what's going on across the world. So I mentioned the US was the first. We have the most PrEP users. You can see the darker colors of green uh, represent the number of users. So there's Australia again. <laughs> that big one right over there. You can see much of Europe is using PrEP, uh, countries in Africa, Asia, South America, and uh, our friends in Canada to the north. So PrEP really has spread out across the world at this point. Okay, how often do you have to take PrEP for it to work? So they used data from that original IPREX study to look at intermittent PrEP, and this is a modeling study to see how often you needed to take it. 
If you took seven doses a week, so that's one pill once a day, 99% risk reduction. If you took four doses a week, 97% risk reduction in this model. And if you only took two, that's where it begins to fall off at 76% risk reduction. I want to emphasize two things. One, this is a model. Some people say all models are wrong, but some are useful. So I think this is useful. The second is this is only MSM. So things may be different in women. Why is that? I'll answer that in a minute. Have you recommended on-demand TDFFTC for PrEP? Yes, no, or I'm not a prescriber. Again, this is the 211 approach, episodic or event-related or on-demand. Those are all syn synonyms, synonyms, not synonym. Okay, so a third of you have recommended this, over half have not, and 16% of you are still not prescribers. <laughs> so what's the status of event-driven PrEP? It's not yet FDA approved, that's important to state. Um, here's what it is, PrEP 211, easy to remember. So a person needs to take two pills two to 24 hours before sex. Predicting sex can be challenging for some people. <laughs> but some people can predict it. So you need to be able to predict when you're going to have sex. Take two TDF-FTCs before, one pill within 24 hours after sex, and then a fourth pill um, at 24 hours after the third pill. So pretty easy to remember. The data here, again, come from the Ypergay study. So just a reminder, FDA specifies once daily, but the 211, the event-driven PrEP, is recommended by now multiple panels. So the IASUSA publishes recommendations for treatment and prevention and supports event-driven PrEP. BIVA are the British, EX are the European guidelines, and the WHO recently stepped up and said, and what all of these groups say is it's an acceptable alternative. So if someone tells you they can't take it every day or they won't take it every day, this is the strategy to explore. And our own New York City just came out with uh, one of the health alerts, Sue, that says on-demand dosing schedule uh, recommended as a safe and effective strategy, the PrEP is, and when daily use is the only approved schedule, robust data support intermittent or on-demand prep. So once again, New York City chiming in saying it's an acceptable alternative if once daily is not practical. Uh, this is the Prevenir study from Paris. They, uh, a very ambitious study, open label prospective cohort, so not a clinical trial, in Paris. They enrolled high-risk adults uh, with inconsistent condom use, adequate renal function, and they had to be hep B negative. Um, in this particular study. And they enrolled over 3,000 people and followed them. So they could choose to take TDFTC either daily or on demand, and they were allowed to switch at every visit, and they were seen with the customary three-month follow-up. Um, interestingly, their big goal was a public health goal. They wanted to be able to show with the rollout of PrEP a 15% reduction in new HIV infections in Paris. Could you have a population level impact by rolling out uh, PrEP? And uh, they presented some results in a modified intent to treat analysis. 
Um, here's the daily group, zero new infections. Here's the on-demand group. There turns out to have been two new infections in that group. But when they went back and looked, both had discontinued PrEP weeks before the infection. Uh, so it looks highly effective there. And you can see a couple people discontinued PrEP due to GI intolerance. So they estimated that 143 HIV infections were averted with the rollout of PrEP with this program in Paris. Now, why might PrEP behave differently in women? And it's all about pharmacokinetics. So what this shows you is a met metabolic study looking at accumulation of tenofovir or tenofovir metabolite. Remember, TF diphosphate, tenofovir diphosphate, is the active drug. And you can see in rectal tissue in women, you achieve 100% of the concentrations, the target concentrations. Um, in vaginal tissue, when it looks at the active agent, you can see it's only 75%, and same with cervical vaginal fluid. So the bottom line here is that taking tenofovir orally, the levels you achieve in the female genital tract are not as robust as in rectal tissue. So that could be an issue for women taking PrEP. Now, I already showed you clinical trials showing you it works. So I think the way to interpret this is women need to take it every day. Uh, they can't take it fewer than once daily. So the on-demand approach for women, probably not a good idea until we have more data. Have you prescribed oral daily TAF FTC as PrEP? Yes, no, or I'm still not a prescriber. <laughs> Okay, so very few people. So two-thirds of prescribers not yet prescribing, only 9% prescribing. So just to remind you, it's considered investigational at this point, TAF, FTC for PrEP. Uh, there are two other investigational agents under exploration. Cabotegravir, which is an injectable integrase inhibitor, is being tested. And then some monoclonal antibodies may be used as newer PrEP agents. Um, here are the TAF accumulation of tenofovir diphosphate in the female genital tract. And you can see some disparities here. So in rectal tissue, it actually falls off in rectal tissue, which is interesting because that's where we think. And it also falls off both in vaginal tissue um, and cervical, uh, cervical vaginal fluid. So levels with TAF different than levels with TDF, both in rectal tissue and the fem female genital tract. So everyone's aware there was a big phase three study called DISCOVER, and it was non-inferiority study in MSM and transgender women. So cisgender women not represented in this study, over 5,000, and they randomized them to daily oral TDF FTC or daily oral TAF FTC. And when the dust settled, there were 22 incident infections, and that was actually non-inferior. So TAF-FTC was non-inferior in terms of reducing HIV compared to TDF-FTC. And they did some other analyses to show improved bone and renal markers with TAF. So TAF non-inferior. 
There were sub-analyses that were presented at the recent Mexico meeting, and it won't surprise you that there were no differences between TAF and TDF in terms of uh, numbers of partners or STIs or adherents, and it was blinded, so that doesn't surprise us. And this recently went to the FDA Advisory Committee in August, and they took a vote for approval. The committee voted 16 to 2 in favor of approving TAF FTC as PrEP for men, but 10 to 8 against approval in women. Now, you might say, why would that be? But recall, there were no women on the study. So it's, it's kind of a quandary, and we'll have to see how the FDA sorts out about this. Uh, I mentioned cabotegravir is being tested right now as a once-every-other-month injection for PrEP. And the latest data, it's almost fully enrolled. This is head-to-head -head versus TDF-FTC. So we expect to hear some results perhaps in the next couple years. That would be a nice alternative for people. And then a newer one that we heard in the Mexico City meeting is a new drug, new name, is Latrivir. Just rolls right off the tongue there. Uh, MK8591, so it's a nucleoside. They put it in an implant and then modeled it and it turns out that you could detect levels for 12 weeks, and then in a modeling experiment, 16 months later, you could still detect this drug. So if this worked for PrEP, can you imagine that we might have an implant that would be an alternative for people to use? That's something to look forward to. And then lastly, what's the impact of all of these measures? We're seeing big changes in big cities. So treatment as prevention, we know, works well, and in addition, we know PrEP is working too. So San Francisco, Sydney, London, New York City, we're seeing between 30 and 50% reductions in new HIV infections in recent years. That's a big success story. And uh, lastly, where are my New York State Department of Health colleagues? Raise your hand. In the back row, come on. <laughs> they wanted me to make you aware of the PrEP Aware Week that's coming up next month. And I'll stop there. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Gulick, for that incredible overview. Lots to talk about. Let me ask the first question. Um, the FDA vote is in next week or the week after? So it's coming up very soon. Remember that the FDA typically follows the advice of its advisory committees. Do you think the FDA is going to follow the advice of the advisory committee this time and not approve Descovy for PrEP in women? It's a great question, and I'm happy to answer it because I have no inside information at all. So whatever I say is just a complete guess. Uh, the data are solid for men, so we're all going to assume that they're going to approve TAF FTC for men. The vote for women was interesting, right? Ten mm -hmm. to eight. Mm -hmm. So I have I'm, some thoughts about that. Yeah, no, I think I think people were voting more as a statement to say that they did not like the idea that we would have a new PrEP drug that would only be available for men and not for women. And so that's why what I think led some people to vote in that way. To me, taking a step back, it's really hard to approve in women if we have no data in women. And then we do have that concern about TAF and tenofovir levels in the female genital tract. So What's your view on this? Did you think I wasn't going to give it to you? Anyway? <laughs> uh, two, po two points of debate just for you to think about. We have the same amount of data for women that we have in heterosexual men. 
for Discovy. They were not in the Discover trial, and all the data for heterosexual women are what we have in heterosexual men. So basically the FDA, I'm sorry, the advisory panel made a decision that um, was, as I would say, unfounded for heterosexual men as it was for heterosexual women. So that's a disparity that I see. The second is this conversation about drug levels in genital tissues is interesting because when you look at the Discovy levels or the TAF, FTC levels in the rectum, they're really not very good, and yet we know it probably works better than TDF, FTC in terms of anal uh, acquisition risk. So we still don't really know how PrEP works. I mean, I guess that's my concern, right? We have a theory about it, but we don't know how much, what components, where it needs to be in genital tissues. So it's a great conversation. So I just want to highlight what Jeannie said. We really don't know why PrEP works. Where does the drug need to be? Does it need to be in the lumen, in the submucosal tissue, in the regional lymph nodes? We don't know. We know it works. I showed you the data. That's from clinical trials, but we don't know why it works or where it has to be. So we'll look forward to what the FDA is going to recommend. They're, they do occasionally go against what their advisory committee say, and your point about heterosexual men is a good one. Really interesting times. Let's get to your great questions. We have about seven minutes. So someone asked about HIV RNA testing to rule out, I assume, acute uh, infection or seroconversion before PrEP initiation. Should I be doing that? I think what the good thing to do is to talk to your person who wants to go on PrEP Make sure that they're not having any acute symptoms, so routine things. If they have a fever or an oral ulcer or a rash and you don't know what's going on, there's no reason to start PrEP now. Let that all settle out. And if you have any suspicion at all, and I usually ask when was your last unprotected sex, um, you do probably want to do the HIV RNA. And what sometimes people say is, yeah, but I don't want to bring them back for another visit. You can tell them. I'm going to write your prescription for PrEP, but don't start it until you hear from me. And then wait for the HIV RNA to come back if you have any suspicion for acute at all. Great. So uh, a couple of related questions, again, um, reflecting this probable FDA action on uh, TAF FTC. When it's approved for PrEP, um, do you think TDF FTC will become obsolete and there will be a big shift to TAF FTC? And I, my related question is, um, do you think that the CDC guidelines will be altered to reflect the requirement for creatinine testing every six months on TAF, on TDF-FTC? Yeah, great questions. So we know TAF has less potential for both bone and renal toxicity. And again, we're using PrEP not to treat anything. We're using it as a preventive. So wouldn't we want to use, quote, the safest drug we could? That's one camp that says that. The other says, wait a second, the difference in side effects between TDF-FTC and placebo using it in this population as PrEP is not different. So what are we talking about here? Are we talking about really a rare, very rare event in terms of toxicity? So I guess what we're going to have to say is that this will be an individual decision. Um, it, there are certain groups probably you'd want to target TAF for, obviously anyone with renal insufficiency, probably people that have risks for renal insufficiency like hypertension or diabetes, people with bone issues, any bone issues at all, you wouldn't want to use TDF. 
What about adolescents who are still growing their bones? And, and often using progesterone for contraception, which also affects your bones. So you might want to turn from that. Maybe Allison will have some things to say about that too. So I think use our clinical judgment. Um, yeah. Great. Thank you. Um, some really good questions pointing out that there has been a lot of chatter and even some local TV ads talking about a class action suit uh, against Gilead regarding uh, the role of TDF FTC causing harm um, in uh, patients taking it for PrEP. And I think uh, the questions largely relate to when patients bring that up, how should you counsel them about that and what is your thinking about that. So here at the New York Law School, <laughs> so have people seen these ads? They're, they're pretty disturbing, and our patients are bringing in things and saying, what's going on? Um, wasn't I on this drug? And I think what we just need to do is educate the patients and tell them, look, this drug has been around for years. It's been proven. We know what the toxicities of this drug are. We test you for them routinely. Most people get no toxicity at all. So it's, it's an unusual toxicity. But I check your creatinine every time I see you, and I'm, I'm doing assessments of bone strength and stuff like that. So I would reassure people that this is not new and uh, that it's not common. And I, you know, in terms of the legal stuff, I don't have anything to say about that. Great. Um, some really, um, I think one great question that contrasts two statements we've been making. One is that we've been hammering home how important adherence is for the efficacy of PrEP, and yet we're saying that on-demand PrEP works. Can you just address that apparent paradox? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So I think it has to do with the goal of PrEP is to have the drug around when exposure occurs. And so reliably taking it once a day we know works. The modeling experiments suggest that if you take it, as, we sh as I showed, four days a week that it probably works for this. The on-demand really targets the event itself and double doses it to make sure that effective levels are being there. So I think it's different ways of achieving the same goal. You want the drug to be there when potential exposure occurs. And there are different ways to do it. Um, I'll say one more thing, and that is um, people need choices for PrEP. Some people like one pill once a day. Some people would like to only take it on demand. Some people would like an injection in their butt every other month if they didn't have to think about PrEP. And then some people might like a once a year implant in their arm. <laughs> and different people would make different choices. We've learned that from contraception. The one thing I would add to that too that I think is worth people being aware of as we consider these longer acting agents for PrEP is the concept of the tail. Um, which you didn't have time to get into. But remember, it sounds great to have something that's going to be around for a week, a month, or 16 months. But remember, at some point, you may want to stop and come off PrEP for various reasons, um, or you may want to get pregnant. Um, and we really need to think about how those levels fall off and what that means for both protection and other issues. So we'll, we'll be hearing more about that. Speaking of pregnancy, some of you asked some questions around pregnancy and PrEP. Just a reminder, Dr. Dion Odom is going to address that in a subsequent talk so I didn't choose those. Um, this is a great question, um, Tripp. What do you think about the fact that PrEP uptake seems to be so much lower among black and Hispanic uh, patients, and what is being done about that disparity? 
Yeah, I think it's really concerning, and I tried to highlight that data. And I think it's just a matter of education and getting the word out in communities that need it the most. Um, I think traditionally, as we all know, young men all across race and ethnicity are not really hooked in with the healthcare system. And we're talking about taking a medication as a preventative. The MSM community, I think, now knows about PrEP, and it's going like wildfire, but it hasn't reached all parts. So I think New York City in particular is taking really great strides to try to reach out to communities of color to let them know about PrEP. And that was the whole PrEP Awareness Week thing. Fantastic. So I can't, don't have much time for other questions, but just three quick comments. One, someone actually did point out um, that it's not just in men, but in New York City, new cases of HIV in women are largely occurring in black and Latino women. So efforts need to target those women for PrEP as well. Um, and then- And just to say, New York City has distributed some data to show that women, black and Latino women at risk do not know about PrEP. Right. at the same rates. It won't, wouldn't surprise you as MSM, but we need to get the word out. And anyone who rides the subway knows <laughs> that the city has developed these wonderful posters about PrEP featuring people from the, the different communities of color. All right, let's give Dr. Grulick an incredibly enthusiastic round.